as we're in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, you didn't know that was going to happen, right? Anyway, so that's exciting stuff. Um, we have actually only got two more preachers to go in this particular section that we're in, the seven seals, and then we'll be done with this section. So I wanted to let you know what you can expect over the next coming weeks, just so you can be prepared. We are going to finish this series. We are going to do the one more installment in this section of the series. We're also going to have a couple of NCMI guys come in and bless us. Ryan and Shannon will be one of those couples that are going to come in here and bless us as they're part of the NCMI team. And then on Father's Day, we have Leo and Christine Nakotra from Sydney, Australia, GGC Life Church. They're coming all the way from Australia to come here to come and invest with us on the Sunday and just be a part of the life of this local church. And then what we're also going to do is we're going to kick off a short summer series. I'm going to give you the details soon. It's going to be great. I promise you that. Uh, and it's going to be really fun for us to do throughout the summer aiming intentionally at releasing gifting in the church. What are we gifted to do? What are we called to do? How do we operate in the environment that God's placed us in? And then from there, we're going to get back into Revelation in the third section, which is the seven trumpets. Everyone give the Lord a hand. It's going to be awesome. You know, we want to hear that. Amen. So along this journey, we've been reminded of a lot of things. We know that the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. And so my hope and prayer is as we've been going through this book, you have had a greater revelation of who Jesus is. Not just as your savior who died on the cross, but as the king of the universe, the Lord that literally right now is unfolding God's plans and purposes for all of creation, including us, into existence. That's the king that we serve. And I also hope that in this process, your relationship with Jesus has gotten closer. I, I certainly can say that just having this perspective has helped me a lot in my prayer time and just wanting to be just more aware of what Jesus is doing around me every single day because he's doing stuff. He's doing stuff all the time. He's changing this world, literally, uh, and I'm excited about that. God is on the throne. His plans are perfect and complete. We realize that there's the scroll that's been written by God, the Father, which tells us that everything in, his, in the history of the world has been sealed before the foundation of this world, and Jesus has been given the authority to open that scroll, to break open those seals and to unravel the scroll for us, and he's revealing that to us in this text. Last week, Sunday, we spoke about the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the first four seals of seven. First seal number one was the white horse. And what I said is I believe it represents Jesus Christ and his forward movement of the gospel, how Jesus came to this earth to both conquer, but he is still conquering still, which reminds us as the church that there is a plan and a purpose for us. We have to take this gospel forward. We are with Jesus as he's riding this red horse of the gospel and his message into all creation. And that's an exciting thing. It means that we've got a job to do. Then we so spoke about the red horse that follows the white horse. And while some people might think it's war, it's not about war. It's about persecution, I believe. Persecution that's going to come to the believers. Why? Because if you've ever preached the gospel, you will know that persecution will come. It might not be from that individual person, but you, what you will know is that you've shaken the enemy. The enemy doesn't like it when we preach God's word. And so persecution is to be expected in the church. It's not to be sought after. Don't go looking for persecution because you want to make yourself feel holy. That's just crazy. But if it comes, when it comes, expect it to come. Then the third horse, which was the black horse, represented suffering. Not the persecution that you'd face in your physical body, but the suffering that will be as a, as a result of the gospel. The suffering that might include being shut out of the economies of this world. Why? Because we've taken a stand for Jesus Christ. People don't like that. The world doesn't like that. Sometimes they'll shut us out, and sometimes we'll shut ourselves out. Why? Because we will say that this doesn't conform to the God that I serve. It doesn't honor his kingdom, and so I'm not going to participate in that economy. And then lastly, we ended off with the pale horse, the horse that is actually speaking to suffering of the entire world, not just suffering for the church, but suffering for the world at large. And so everybody's going to suffer. That's the, 
unfortunate reality of the world that we live in today. And I said this last week, if you don't believe there's suffering in this world, then I think I need to just have a chat with you afterwards. This world is full of suffering. We'll see a video a bit later that will speak to that too. But the pale horse brought in some woes with it, death. First of all, there was this war reality, this reality that kingdom would rise against kingdom and nation would rise against nation. There's going to be wars all over the world. And if you're looking for peace in this world, you're in the wrong place. Unfortunately, peace is not going to come in its entirety to this world. What we can be promised is more conflict. And we see it all around us all the time. People cannot agree on anything anymore. And then from war, we get famine, the famine that's as a result of war, the famine that literally means there's going to be a shortage of things. We might not be able to feed our kids. Some people can't feed their children. Some people will realize famine in other ways. Perhaps it's rising inflation, runaway inflation, high gas prices. We all feel the pinch of the things that follow the results of war. And then pestilence, pestilence at a global scale. Diseases will, will come forth like we've just been through, an entire outbreak. Those things will come. And so we as the church are being prepared. Remember, these things are coming. Don't be scared. Don't be fearful. Just know that they're coming. Not because I don't love you, but because I'm revealing my plan throughout the creation. And then the last thing that was mentioned last week by the pale horse rider was this reality that creation is going to come up against God's people and the world. Now, what does that mean? That means that we are going to suffer natural disasters. It means that the beasts of the earth will rise up. And so those things all happen around us. The great news at the end of that was that the pale horse is governed by God. In other words, he's given dominion over one-fourth, no more and no less. God is in control. He is taking the forward movement of his kingdom to where it needs to go. And all of these things are about the birthing pains of a new reality to come, a new kingdom, a new creation. And guess what? All of us who know Jesus today will be a part of that kingdom. And that brings us to this morning. We're going to unpack seals five and six, two of them for us today, both of which I'm going to be honest are going to be hard to hear again. However, I believe that it's in understanding these, these skills, seals, from a kingdom perspective, that I think will leave you encouraged. At least that's my hope. If you don't leave you encouraged, you can come talk to me afterwards, and I'll encourage you some more. Just keep encouraging you the whole day. Amen. So let's turn to Revelation 6. We're going to read from verse 9. Um, but before we get to seal 5, I just want to pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning humbly, and I literally just ask, Lord, that you would pour yourself in me that you would help me to speak your words, not my words, that you would help me to speak clearly, there we go, succinctly, I mean, that, you know what I'm saying, Lord, it's helping already, um, succinctly, there we go, and I pray, Father, that whatever I speak today would be words of life, uh, and that we would receive them as such, and that you alone would be glorified, Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up today as our conquering king, and the only hero that matters in the story, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation 6 verse 9 says, when he opened the fifth seal. So who's opening the seals? Jesus is opening the seals. He's opening the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. So maybe before we get into the details of this, maybe it's important that we start to try and imagine in our minds, what is it that John is seeing in this vision? Remember, this is a vision. John is being exposed to this picture and he sees these souls, these souls that are literally standing at the throne room of God. And when, when we think about this in our minds, sometimes we tend to think of what we've seen in movies, perhaps. Maybe we think that these are disembodied beings because we think of a soul as being a spirit. 
In the Hebrew, the word soul can mean many things. In fact, in Numbers chapter 6, the word soul actually means corpses. It means dead bodies. So is John seeing dead bodies? Is he seeing poltergeists? Is he seeing ghostbusters up there in heaven? I don't really think that's what John is seeing. I think what John is seeing is the blood of the saints that has been poured out at the base of the altar. And this becomes important a little bit later on. But why I believe that is Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood. I believe John is seeing a vision of the temple. Remember, we're in a temple vision here. He's in the heavenly temple. And so I don't think it's spirits. I don't think it's bodies. I think it's the blood that has been poured out that he's looking at. And we're going to come back to this thought a little bit later on. But it brings us to our first point. And the first point is this. Laying down our lives for the gospel is not for the select few powerful, amazing, supernatural Christians. It's for all of us. Laying down our lives is for everyone. This seal is confirming what we read about last week. It's confirming that martyring in the kingdom is a reality, that people will die for their faith. Some people are going to die for their faith. Some of them are going to die in very horrible ways. I really pray that none of us in this room will ever have to go through that. But I have to be honest, in the context of where we live, in the context of this church in Lakeway, in this city perhaps, this reality can be hard to understand. It can be very hard for us to comprehend this. It's, a, it's almost like we're disassociated from it in some sense. We live in a little bit of a bubble, partly because we live in a state where we can freely exercise our right to worship God. None of us came to church this morning wondering if there was going to be a militia outside waiting for you to burn you at the stake because of your faith. Now, I'm not saying that might never happen, but certainly it doesn't happen in general where we are. And so it's with that that we find this type of sort of descriptive picture hard to understand but I do want to say something I believe that what John is seeing in this picture whilst it definitely does refer to the saints that have been slain for their faith I believe he's referencing another category of saints too Jesus himself said this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23 he said if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me if anyone would follow Jesus Part of the requirement is that we would deny ourselves, in other words, lay our lives down, pick up our cross, which means expect whatever hardships you will face on this journey and follow Christ. And so the point I'm making is that whether in death, death, death or life, the, or, the reality that all of us will have to bear is that we all are called to lay our lives down for the gospel. Now, whilst that not, might not mean death for some of us, what it might mean is ridicule because of Jesus. It might mean exclusion from the economy because of Jesus, as we've heard. It might mean being excommunicated by the ones that we love most or our friendship circles. Perhaps for some of us, it's simply the fact that we know what it means to lay down our own comfort, our own desires, and our own sin to follow Christ. I believe the blood represents all of those categories of saints, those that have died in the service to the Lord, in laying down their lives every moment of every day for the gospel. Some will have died, but some of us will suffer the cost regardless. In fact, all of us will. Revelation 6 verse 10 continues. It says, they cried out with a loud voice. The blood is crying out. The saints are crying out. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Point number two, and this is where the blood becomes really important, is that we can often see Jesus as our king, which he is. He is the king. He's on the throne. But I want to tell you another aspect of Jesus that we need to see is he is our high priest. This whole picture is happening in this temple. We've got a picture here of the, the tabernacle that was set up. And so this tabernacle that you'll see up here on the screen any minute now, any minute now it's coming. Stephen's got it. Southern Steve is getting there. 
Okay. I want you to imagine the tabernacle. See, it's on my iPad. It's like that tiny little thing there. Okay, we can all imagine. It's great. Woo, okay. So that was really fun, eh? So there's a tabernacle. And in the tabernacle are many rooms. In fact, two rooms. The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. There's a curtain, the dividing sort of veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And on the other side of the curtain is an altar. It's called the altar of incense. I believe that the blood that is being referred to, to, to in this text is the blood that was poured out on the Day of Atonement at the foot of the altar of incense. I don't think it's the brazen altar. I don't think in this picture John is seeing the altar that was outside the tent. I think he's seeing the one inside the tent, the altar of incense. And why that matters to us is that that's the altar where the prayers were offered. The incense represents the prayers of the saints of God, rising up to God the Father as an honoring sacrifice. The Bible says that God will inhabit the praises of his people. Those uh, moments in time when the priests would pray for the nation of Israel on the Day of Atonement, what they would physically do is take two goats. They would take one goat that they would slaughter. They would take the blood. They would pour it out on the four corners of the altar and pour the blood at the foot of the altar. And then what they would do is they would pray into the second goat all the sins of the nation of Israel. They would pour out all of their sins on this goat and release it to the wilderness. And the picture there is that the atoning sacrifice of Christ is the one that ultimately these saints are sitting under. You see, this tells me two things. One, in Leviticus 17, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Just understand this. Who gave us the blood? He gave us, God gave us the blood, right? I gave you the blood as an atoning sacrifice for your souls. And then it says this, for it is the blood, not some blood, not the goat's blood. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The picture here is this. Jesus' blood was poured out in the heavenly altar of incense on the moment of his crucifixion. And it is lying on top of that altar of incense. Beneath that altar is the blood of the saints. And the powerful picture in this is that because the souls of the saints are underneath the altar and not on top of it, it reminds us every moment of every day that when God the Father hears our cries, He sees them through the lens of who Jesus is. He sees us through the blood of Christ. He sees us as Jesus, not us. And that's why these saints can cry out to God the Father, Holy, holy are you, Lord Almighty. When will you answer these prayers? Had it not been for Jesus, these saints would be not talking to God at this point. And so the key in all of this is that we have to learn to see Jesus not just as the king who we think wants to hold us to a set of rules and regulations and tasks, but the priest who intercedes on our behalf, the priest who is literally the dividing wall between us and God the Father that makes us holy. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Since then we have our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Because Jesus has been sacrificed, because his blood has been poured on the altar, we can hold fast to our faith. It is true. It is reliable. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And that tells me that no matter what you've done in your life, no matter how you got here this morning, no matter how unworthy you feel, no matter how distant from God you feel, no matter how separated from God you feel, no matter anything that you've suffered or will suffer or go through, the one fact that we have is Jesus is our intercessor and he fights for us every single moment of our lives. Revelation 6 verse 11 continues, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. 
Our suffering friends, third point, is going to come with a reward. Two things are given to these martyrs, or two things happen here to these martyrs. First, they receive honor. The honor that these martyrs receive is given to them in the form of a white robe. We spoke about this white robe last week, or we spoke about the color white and how Jesus was riding the white horse. He's the only one that's holy, just, and true, and perfect. But because of who Jesus is, these saints are given the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, let me tell you, even though these saints may have died for the gospel, may have been killed for the gospel, may have suffered for the gospel, one thing you have to understand is none of those saints, even going through what they went through, were ever perfect. The point I'm making is they never deserved the white robe. But Jesus gives it to them anyway. Why? Because he died for us. He imputed his righteousness on us. And so you need to remember, it's not about what you do. It's not about how often you go to church, how many boxes you take, how often you read your Bible, how many old ladies you walked across the street, with all respect to anybody here of age, I'm not saying that, how many dogs you've saved, how many people you've gone and reached. It's got nothing to do with the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is given to us by Jesus as a gift. So these saints receive honor. An honor that can never be taken away from him. An honor that lasts for eternity. Not just for today, but forever. The second thing that these saints are given is the privilege of knowing that there will be a day of vindication. Now I want to be just clear on this because this can be quite confusing. These saints are not crying out for revenge. I say that because that's not what we do, right, as believers. We don't cry out for revenge. We don't ask God to you know, smite our enemies and to kill everybody that's against us. Jesus went to the cross in Luke chapter 24. And after, just before he was about to die, he says this, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Stephen being martyred, stoned and beaten and killed before he dies, beholding the glory of God, he cries out, forgive them, for they know not what to do. These saints are not crying out for revenge. They're crying out for justice. Revenge and justice are two different things. And you know whose justice they're crying out for? They're not crying out for their own justice. They're crying out that God will be vindicated. You see, here's the deal. If you face persecution in your life, if you face suffering in your life, people are not persecuting you for the sake of the gospel. They're not persecuting you as an individual or as me as an individual. They are persecuting the God that we serve. There's no personal issue here. The issue is I don't like what you believe in, and so I'm going to kill you, I'm going to make you suffer, and I'm going to exclude you from the economy. They're not persecuting us. They're persecuting God. And so the saints are crying out, Lord, when will you have vindication for your own honor? When will that day come when the world will see that you are truly God? The good news is there will be a day where the Lord in his justice will vindicate himself. The crazy part is when God gets vindicated, so do we. But that's not the point. His vindication will come. The world will see that God is God, that Jesus died on the cross, and they will realize that God is who he says he is. Until that time, though, these saints get the opportunity to rest. The Bible says that they need to rest until the appointed time, that moment in time where everything is going to come to the end, the summation of the world. There is a period of time that we have to go through, friends. We don't know how long it is, but what I do want to say to you is that rest that they're giving and is given is not sleep. I know that might sound super inviting, especially to moms in this room. When you think of a 2,000 years sleep, you're like, hey, man, I could do with 2,000 years of sleeping. But it's rest. Rest in the presence of God. Jesus, the King, with the Holy Spirit, with the saints, with the angels, enjoying God forever. And then we get to seal 6. Revelation 6, verse 12. says, when he opened the sixth seal. I want to just pause here for a second because... There's quite a lot of information here that I want to just 
sort of set up first. What we're about to see here is the day that we have read about throughout Scripture. Some of us will remember movies. The day after tomorrow, the 20, whatever, 2055, whatever, all of these crazy end of the world movies. Judgment Day, Apocalypse, the end of the world, the end of days, all of these crazy things that we've seen on TV and all of these things we've heard about. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 describes this day as follows. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Total annihilation, friends. Matthew 24, verse 39. Jesus is speaking to the disciples about the destruction of the temple, and what he's doing is he's tying an analogy to this whole thing about the days of Noah. He's saying before the flood, Noah warned people, but despite that, people continued to live their lives as if there was going to be no end. There was going to be no judgment. They were eating and drinking and being married, giving themselves in marriage and getting married. And then Jesus says this, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. They were unaware. But guess what? The flood came. Destruction will come. And so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And what's interesting to me is that this day, the end of days, the apocalypse, the judgment day that we are going to face, happens in the sixth seal. Now you might be wondering, well, what is the significance? Why does this even matter to us? Why is it important that this day in particular is spoken about in seal number six? Well, remember at the beginning of Revelation, I said to you that numbers in Revelation mean things. Numbers in Revelation have symbolic meaning attached to them. Numbers in Revelation speak to us about certain things. The number six represents mankind. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, on the sixth day God rested and he said it was good. And on that day he created mankind, man and woman, in his own image and in his own likeness. Day number six, the number number six represents mankind. But what's interesting about this seal as we unpack it now is you're going to see the number six reiterated twice more. There are six objects that are going to be affected in the end. Six objects that are mentioned, and there are six classes of people that are going to be affected in the end. And so when you take the number six for the seal, the six objects and the six people, what do you get? We get 666. And so what is 666 telling us? This is my interpretation, I believe both for here and Revelation chapter 13. The number 666 is a symbol. I don't believe it's a calculation. I don't think it's Hitler. I don't think it's Idi Amin necessarily. I think it's a symbol. And what the symbol believes, I, at least what, what it means I believe, is it stands for human wickedness raised to its highest power. It's six to the power of six to the power of six. All the world that has turned their backs on God. The unbelievers who have shunned God, disgraced him, said, I never want to be in your presence. That's what the number 666 represents to me. It's the wickedness of humanity. It's a world gone wrong. And if that's true, it tells me that this seal that we're about to hear about now, this impending judgment that is going to come, is not targeted at believers. It's targeted at an unbelieving world. And so I'm encouraging you this morning that we're going to hear some scary stuff, but this judgment is not targeted at us. In fact, what you will find in the end of all of this is in that moment, in that day, we will be vindicated again. Not scared, not fearful, not running away or hiding. We will be vindicated. And that brings us to the fourth point, is that God is going to reveal himself to this world. He's tried many times before. He sent his prophets, they were killed. He sent his son, he was killed. He's given us his word. People are dying because of the word. But one day, God will reveal himself to this world, even if it has to be through judgment. 
Revelation 6 verse 12 says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. John is seeing the fabric of the universe being torn apart. Isaiah 34 verse 4 puts it this way. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. And the six objects that are mentioned is an earthquake. Earthquakes will come. It's this picture of the rising and the falling of the earth at the Lord's will. It speaks of his power, his majesty. The sun is going to be blotted out, not eclipsed, blotted out. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and he was about to die? It says that the earth turned dark. Why? Because God the Father took his eyes off his son. And in that moment, the world was plunged into darkness. This is the total absence of light, friends. God is no longer for the world. He is now against it. And so it becomes really dark. The moon becomes like blood. Speaking of all of these things we're going to see happen in the heavenlies, the stars will fall to the earth. And if anyone's an astronomer here, you'll understand one thing real clearly. Stars cannot fall to the earth. Stars are much bigger than the earth. They will smash the earth into pieces. The point I'm trying to make is this is a vision. John is seeing things happen in this vision. The fig tree will shed its leaves, all the stars, everything in the universe, in the cosmos that's being held together by the, the hand of God will all of a sudden spin out of control. Why? Because God's saying, I'm taking my hands of this. Mountains and islands, those things that we thought were immovable will now be removed. And I know this all sounds crazy and I know this sounds scary. But this is targeted to an unbelieving world. And we mustn't push the symbolism behind these events too far. I say that because while John is seeing very real events unfold in this vision, I don't necessarily this is speaking, think this is speaking to a sequence of events. I don't necessarily think we're going to see these things in the exact order, and I don't necessarily know how it's all going to be in the end, but what I am telling you now is the message that's coming across through this text is it's going to be pretty scary when it does happen. But there's one message that is really important that we understand this morning, one lesson that is being taught in this part of the vision, and that is this, the final and the complete pouring out of God's wrath on a world that has persecuted his church will be terrible. The wrath of God will be poured out Onto this world because of the persecution that the saints of God, Jesus Christ, the prophets before him, and God himself has borne at the hands of this world. And that brings us to our fifth point, and it's our final point. We, said, we spoke about this briefly a few weeks ago when I spoke about Jesus the lion or the lamb. But the fact of the matter is we can receive Jesus in two ways, and everyone has a choice right now. We can receive him as Savior or we will receive him as judge. Revelation 6.15, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. That's an important point. Remember that, the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath, not you know, anyone else, this is God's wrath, has come, and who can stand? How many of you believe that the wrath of God is against you as a believer? No one. And so you're safe. Take courage. We read this. You are not the object of God's wrath. None of us are. Why? Well, remember the blood on the altar. When God sees us, he sees Jesus. His wrath is not on us. The Lamb's wrath is not on us. Because when he sees us, he sees his imputed righteousness. 
And so just like the martyrs in heaven are assured that one day there will be a, a day of vindication for them, there is a promise to all of us. And I'm speaking about the church here and the global church. Those who have suffered at the hands of a persecuting world will find that the church will be vindicated. Six classes of people are mentioned. Kings, those in political power, unbelievers will come down. No matter how strong these political establishments may look, they will fall. The strong ones or the great ones, also translated as princes, those who hold power in political environments will fall. The generals representing the military powers of this world who are so scary will fall. The rich who represent those who wield their power through wealth will fall. The powerful who represents power in any area, whether you're a celebrity, a TikToker with 500 million followers, whether you are a, uh, a strong man, literally like a strong man, whether you're in education, wherever it is, anybody that has power in this world will fall. The slaves and the free will fall too. In other words, the entire earth, even the most powerful people who have often brought the most horrible persecution to the church will fall. Jesus will be vindicated. Every unbeliever will be affected by this. There is nobody that is exempt from this day. The phrase, the wrath of the Lamb, I said it's important. It's important for this. It's an intentional paradox. I don't know about you, but when I think of a lamb, I don't think of it as being scary, right? It's cute. It's got white fur. It's cuddly. It's nice. It's meek. It's gentle. It's never angry, right? A lamb doesn't seem to be angry. I've never seen a, you know, a, a killer lamb out there. And so this concept, the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of the lamb, the wrath, the wrath of the lamb, is telling us something important. And it's what I said earlier: if Jesus is not received as savior, he will be presented as judge. And that reality is so terrifying to the people mentioned in this text, the unbelievers that the only way that they think they can escape is to kill themselves. You're probably wondering what happens to us in this moment, what happens to the world, what happens to, I mean, what happens to the church in the world when all of this is going down. I don't know if some of us will be here to see it. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Could be tonight, could be tomorrow, could be you know, this week or 100 years from now. I don't know when this moment will happen, but what happens if we're here? We will celebrate because our lamb has come back for us. The king is on the throne. We will celebrate. We will have no fear in that moment. I can promise you this. You will glorify God. You will love him. You will celebrate him. And you will thank him for saving you. But that does expose us to a harsh reality. And the harsh reality is this. On that day, the whole unbelieving world, everybody who has shaken their fists at God, will believe. They will believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But you know what? It won't matter. It's too late. Once Jesus comes, the door of grace is shut. And that fact should bother every single one of us. You can't look at that and not be moved. But I want to say to you this morning that the great and fearful day of the Lord is at hand. There's work to be done. Jesus is inviting us to invite out and conquer this world with him. Not to see people suffer or to die, but to be saved. And I want to just be intentional about asking us to be a church that realizes a couple of things. I want us to realize this morning as a church that it's not good enough that we would just sit back and watch a world go to hell. That we would be a church that realizes it's not good enough 
that we realize it's not about our comfort or our joys or our experiences in this life, but rather that we would realize that there's a world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. And that we would be a church who stops allowing ourselves to get so distracted or divided by politics, by offenses or preferences that we lose sight of what matters most. What matters most, friends, is to know Christ and to make Him known. And so as we worship in this last song, we've got one more song to sing and we're going to end. Can I ask you to lift up in your mind every single person that you know in your life who is not saved today? Every person who will face the awesome and fearful day of the Lord and who will want to die in that moment. Can I ask you to lift them up in prayer? And then can I ask you that when you leave here, that you'll be intentional about telling somebody about Jesus. Because I don't want to see anybody suffer. And yes, we know they will suffer. But man, our job is to save as many people as we can along the way. If anyone needs prayer, there'll be prayer partners at the back. They've got volunteer tags on them. You'll notice them. We'll be up here in the front if you need prayer for anything as well. Maybe you need prayer because you need a recommissioning. Maybe you need prayer because you really haven't thought about the loss. Maybe you need prayer because nobody really outside of your circle of influence has ever mattered. But today your heart's been shifted. I'd love to pray with you. I have to tell you that I haven't always had this heart. But this is the command that God gave us before He left this earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And know this, I will be with you until the end of the age. Let's stand. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we recognize, Lord, that there is more work to be done. We thank you, Lord, for always encouraging us and reminding us that there are lost people that you love out there that need to hear this gospel. Lord, I pray that you would mobilize us as your priesthood and that you would give us the courage to bring this message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. I pray this in Jesus' name.